This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is readying ourselves for revelation. In the first half, Roger Sorensen gives his BYU devotional address entitled Evidences of the Heart. Then in the second half, Tracy B. Nielsen shares her thoughts entitled The Messy Middle of Revelation. My wife and I have been blessed with eight grandchildren. Uh, Three of them are twins. Ashley is on the left and Brooke is on the right. Two months ago, they gave the scripture and prayer in their primary closing exercises. Josh helped Ashley give the scripture. During the closing song, he whispered to Brooke, Can you do the prayer by yourself? No, she said. I need help. Okay, you do what you can, and I'll help you if you get stuck. Okay, said Brookie. The twinners are both capable of fine, fine prayers. In fact, some of the blessings on the food are so long that the food is cold before we get to it. They bless everything. The song ended, and up went Brooke to the podium. She climbed the three-step stool and pulled the microphone down to her mouth level. She folded her arms and bowed her head and then waited. Josh whispered into her ear, Okay, do what you can. And into the microphone she said, Okay, do what you can. (laughs) And again she waited, eyes tightly closed. Josh whispered into her ear, No, you do what you can. And sure enough, Brooke said into the microphone, No, you do what you can. Josh looked up, and and, uh, all the adults in the audience (laughs) were rocking back and forth in their chairs and laughing. (laughs) And finally he whispered, Heavenly Father. And Brooke said into the microphone, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. And the prayer was on its way. This story invites me and the rest of us to think about how in our prayers sometimes we say to our Heavenly Father, Okay, do what you can. In essence, asking him to resolve our challenges. In the silence that follows, perhaps we hear the response of a loving father speaking to his child. No, you do what you can, and I'll help you if you get stuck. My dear sisters and brothers, today I will share stories that come from my years of service on the Hill Cumorah pageant. I suspect some of you in the audience have actually been at the Hill Cumorah. Uh, either on it or in it. I would like to tell stories that I hope invite us to ponder together and explore in our minds and hearts ways we can discern promptings from Heavenly Father. I love the cradle of the restoration. I have repeatedly worked and walked on the sacred ground of the places that played key roles in bringing the gospel back to this earth. Because of the fruits of those experiences, the gospel of Christ is inextricably woven into the fibers of my soul. I am grateful to have been constrained by the Spirit to speak further of these places today. My prayer is that we will seek to know the truths of the restored gospel by finding our own sacred places and listening to the Holy Spirit speak evidences to our hearts. Paul tells us, The things of God knoweth no man but by the Spirit of God. In our last April conference, Elder Carlos H. Amado 
spoke of service. He said, those who serve with devotion, even when things don't turn out the way they would like, are not easily discouraged, fatigued, or frustrated, because the promise of peace of mind and the companionship of the Holy Spirit will never abandon them. There is something in service and sacrifice, especially in the face of adversity, that prepares the heart for hearing the Holy Spirit. Seven years ago, I was standing at the crest of the Hill Cumorah. This was before the sets were up and before the cast arrived. And I was visiting with a group of tourists. One of them asked where the audience sat. I pointed to the empty field at the foot of the hill where, in two weeks, 8,000 chairs would be arranged. Looking closely, I noticed something I had not seen before. The pattern of the area where the seats go and the aisles in between was subtly imprinted in the grass. Later, I talked to Brother Payne, who year after year was in charge of marking out the location of the chairs and supervising their setup. I asked if he had noticed that the grass in the aisles was darker and hardier than the grass where the seats were located. He told me the grass in the aisles was so distinct he could almost mark the field for the chairs without measuring. On the day it is marked and the cast members set up the 8,000 chairs, the field is lush and green. During the run of the pageant, thousands and thousands of feet tramp down those aisles. Eleven days later, when those same chairs are placed back into their storage trailers, the field is a modified checkerboard of long green grass where the chairs have been sitting and ten-foot-wide strips of either matted brown, seemingly dead grass in dry years or muddy bogs in wet years. It grows back stronger every year. I believe service and sacrifice, especially when performed in the arms of adversity, strengthen our souls and soften our hearts. Mighty struggle prepares us to hear and follow promptings and enlarges our capacity to follow Christ. We experience peace of mind and the assurance that the Holy Spirit will be our constant companion. There's a lovely little poem by Emily Dickinson that captures this principle. I fit for them. I seek the dark till I am thorough fit. The labor is a sober one with this sufficient sweet that abstinence of mine produce a pure food for them if I succeed. If not, I had the transport of the aim. What does it mean to fit for another? Who is them? What is the dark? What is this person abstaining from? What is the pure food? And what is the nature of this person's transport? The Savior said, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Somewhere in the depths of service, sacrifice, and adversity, we come to know the transformative powers of the Spirit, and we are changed. We come to embrace more fully the atonement and the Lord's love for us. The Savior told his disciples, The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Each year, when I worked on the pageant, I took along one of our children so they could personally experience the place where it all began. 
We went to the Grove whenever we had a chance, especially if we found times when we could be pretty much alone there. It is a truly sacred place where the Spirit witnesses and testimonies are strengthened. In July of 1984, my son Josh and I spent an hour in the Grove. It was less than three weeks before his eighth birthday. We walked and talked in the shadows of the trees. We caught a frog, watched birds wing from leaf to limb, and listened to the warmth well up inside our hearts. It was there, amongst those trees, the conversation that shaped eternity took place, embedded in the patterns of their rings and in the seasonal rebirth of their leaves, is a testimony. They witnessed a 14-year-old boy struggle against the dark powers of Lucifer. They felt the warm illumination of the Holy Spirit penetrate the darkness. They heard the loving tones of Elohim testify of his only begotten Son. They listened as our Savior taught Joseph the tenets of eternal truth. Simple sentences, words spoken to the heart, clarity, charity expressed, Grace, the opening of the floodgates of a new dispensation of light and knowledge. Our spirits were with Heavenly Father and Jehovah when this world was created. We saw our Savior's face and heard His voice. We felt His love. We knew then of our Father's plan for the atonement and that the restoration would take place in these latter days. We can know now the truthfulness of these promises as we prepare our hearts to hear the Holy Spirit whisper these things to our remembrance. In his most recent conference address, Elder L. Tom Perry talked a little bit about faith. He said, Faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement turns us to him. The world teaches that seeing is believing, but our faith in our Lord leads us to believe so we can see him and the Father's plan for us. These polarities fascinate me. At certain times, seeing is believing. At other times and places, believing is seeing. Do you recognize the building in this picture? For over 25 years, I thought this was the Joseph Smith home that Alvin built. A white clapboard exterior with a house-wide porch on the west, stairs to the second level up to center of the home, four bedrooms upstairs, one of which had been the room Joseph and Emma shared during the time the prophet received the plates. Seeing was believing. I remember standing on the landing of the second floor, looking out of those windows, seeing the grove, Imagining to myself that the boy Joseph stood in that very spot looking out of those very windows at the grove, remembering what had happened there. Well, extensive research coupled with guidance from the Holy Spirit resulted in a surprising restoration. The porch and the west-facing windows on the second level, the four upstairs bedrooms, all gone. Now the stairs to the second level are located in the southeast corner of the house. A fireplace complex occupies the center of the home with hearths in each of the three rooms that surround it. Upstairs, there are no bedrooms, just one large room with the fireplace bricks rising through the center. In Joseph's day, it had been divided into sleeping quarters by blankets. I am amazed. Things are not necessarily what they seem to be. 
When it comes to eternal truths, we must rely more upon the witness of the Holy Spirit than on the evidence of eyes and ears and mind. Believing is seeing. In April conference of 2007, Elder Glenn L. Pace gave a talk entitled, Do You Know? In it, he told of when, as a missionary, he taught an extremely intelligent woman who had a hard time accepting anything until she had nailed down every intellectual loose end. However, at long last, we heard her say, I cannot deny this feeling any longer. She joined the church, but gradually fell away. Fifteen years later, she visited Elder Pace and his family in Salt Lake City. They took her to Temple Square. Elder Pace reports, As we started up the circular ramp leading to the statue of the Savior, she paused and tearfully said, Here comes that feeling again. My heart still yearns for what my mind won't accept. This is a dear story. It reminds me of another sacred place in the land of restoration. The Palmyra Temple opened in the year 2000. After the close of the pageant that year, after the cast and crew had gone, and the day before I returned home, I went to the temple. When the session was over, I looked out the west foyer window through which the tops of the trees of the sacred grove are visible. From one of the most significant manifestations of the restored gospel, the temple. I could see the setting sun, the place where it all began, in the sacred grove. There is a significant connection between these sacred places, one where Elohim and Jehovah opened the gates to the fullness of time, the other, the fulfillment of the promise, the place where Jehovah and Elohim visit today, their home, holiness to the Lord, the house of the Lord. I had been told there were fireflies in the grove at night, though my previous visits had always been during the day, so I had never seen them. Over the next 45 minutes, fireflies began to flicker. Thousands of them emerged from the undergrowth. For me, it was a mystery. I was astonished. Where did such a population live? The darker the night became, the more fireflies emerged, flickering amongst the dark maples and birches. Silently, they told of another world within the one I perceived. I wondered, what else exists in this universe of ours without my knowledge? I yearn to know those truths. An eternity exists with a just Father, a compassionate Savior, and a Holy Spirit, yet I cannot see them with my eyes. The flickering fireflies were beautiful, dark more than they were light. Their momentary brightness enthralled me. Collectively, they were a pulsing, living community, throbbing in the spaces between the benevolent trees, dark beyond my capacity to see, silent beyond my ability to hear, alive in a place whose sacredness is beyond my ability to fully understand. Nothing much more happened to the fireflies that night. They didn't stop flickering. They didn't fly away. They continued to create momentary intensities without illuminating anything other than themselves and the awareness of silent tree trunks reaching skyward in the dark. But something more happened to my heart 
I knew again there were many more truths I did not comprehend that would require greater faith than I was currently exercising to recognize. I left the grove on a trail I hadn't seen before. The path wound around in the direction of the newly built Smith cabin, another way into the trees. I suspected it might be closer to the one Joseph walked in 1820. I paused by the cabin, pondering the visit of Moroni to Joseph. While the household slept, Moroni taught Joseph through the long night of September 21, 1823. Three times he visited, repeating the same message, and no one awoke. The only way anyone but Joseph could know it happened was if they believed. Walking back to the temple, I came full circle from 1820 to the year 2000. Today, 188 years later, a beacon radiates the night sky, a light on a hill seen by thousands, yet comprehended by relatively few. I returned to Camorra's Hill, climbed up its face and stood on the crest. Somewhere near, Moroni had appeared to Joseph, teaching him the doctrines and the gospel and about a civilization long lost to the modern world. Here is a picture of the hill taken around the end of the 19th century. It was basically bare. Accounts suggest that during the years Moroni visited Joseph Smith, there were few trees on the hill. Yet, no one saw the visits. A restoration on Camorra's Hill. Radiating truth through a young man who could see it. Revealing a world of faith and light that shines amongst the dark shadows of doubt and disbelief. Now, let's explore three questions. First, what does the voice of the Holy Spirit sound like? In D&C 8 and 2, the Lord explains, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. At times for me, his voice is a warmth that wells up inside. I feel it. At other times, it is a clear impression or a vital deja vu or an aha or an of course. Sometimes... It is a realization in my mind that I have heard a whisper. What does his voice sound like to you? Second question. What can we do to prepare ourselves to hear the Holy Spirit? Several weeks ago, as I was cutting the lawn, our lawnmower stopped working. I took the spark plug out and it was covered with carbon. I cleaned it and put it back in. The mower started right up and I was feeling I should have been a small engine repairman. However, a minute later, it coughed to a standstill. Carbon coated the plug again, so I called some real repair places and found they had a three-week backlog. A few days later, I decided to try fixing it again myself. I remembered from my youth that engines needed a proper balance between air and gasoline in order to run. I also remembered there is a valve somewhere that adjusts this mixture. I decided to look for it. The first thing I did was remove the air filter. It was so dirty that no air could get through. After replacing it and cleaning the plug again, the mower worked. My potential career as a repairman was back on track. Keeping our filters clean is one thing we can do to prepare ourselves to hear the Holy Spirit. 
Our relationship with the Spirit depends a lot upon what enters into our hearts, what we listen to, think about, read, watch, and do with our time and energy. What we choose to allow to enter into our minds and hearts will influence the way we hear, feel, and understand the promptings of the Spirit. Another way to prepare to hear His voice is to balance the mixture between the air and the source. I am quite certain that the voice of the Spirit cannot be discerned through a cacophony of sensory stimulations. We may be really good at multitasking, layering our senses with iPods, DVDs, instant messaging, surfing the net, and playing virtual games all while doing our homework. But if we want to hear the promptings of the Holy Spirit, we must dedicate space and time and solitude to that relationship. Third question. How can we distinguish between the voice of the Holy Spirit and the voice of the adversary? I have felt and followed the promptings and enticings of both voices. I believe it is possible to distinguish between them by the differences in their characteristics and the differences in their works. The Holy Spirit is warm, gentle, quiet, and penetrating. Helaman records how Nephi and Lehi were freed from prison by an earthquake and a fire, after which they heard his voice and beheld that it was not a voice of thunder. Neither was it a voice of a great tumultuous noise, but behold, it was a still voice of perfect mildness, as if it had been a whisper, and it did pierce even to the very soul. The Holy Spirit invites, entices, and persuades us to do good works. In D&C 11 and 12, the Lord encourages us to put our trust in that spirit which leadeth to do good, yea, to do justly, to walk humbly, to judge righteously. Conversely, following the promptings of the adversary results in a cold loneliness. His enticing leads to the depths of despair rather than to the depths of faith. His encouragement leads to pride and self-absorption rather than to service and self-worth. He advocates arrogance rather than meekness. He persuades us to indulge in appetites that result in addictions. The Holy Spirit invites the development of virtues such as endurance, faith, kindness, long-suffering, and patience. All behaviors that preserve agency. While the Holy Ghost testifies of Heavenly Father, Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and the Atonement, the adversary denies them all and seeks the glory for himself. The adversary wants us to have every worldly thing that he may own us. The Holy Spirit wants us to lose our lives in service that we may gain all our Father has that we may be free. Elder Ballard explains, quote, When we seek inspiration, the Lord gives gentle promptings. These require us to think, to exercise faith, to work, to struggle, at times, and to act. Unquote. Let's come full circle another way. In a book called Here We Stand, Joseph Fielding McConkie writes, Everyone is required to do what Joseph Smith did. And that is to receive the personal revelation that the wisdom that brings salvation comes only by the spirit of revelation, and then each must find his own equivalent of the sacred grove and obtain his own answer. 
through the warmth of the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart and out of the hallowed ground of sacred places, I bear testimony that Joseph Smith experienced the presence of Heavenly Father Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost in the sacred grove. He saw Elohim and Jehovah. He heard their teachings. I testify that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. He atoned for our sins, weaknesses, shortcomings, heartaches, and sorrows. He sacrificed his life that we might repent and live again. Because of his atonement, all broken souls can be healed and all splintered relationships can be repaired if we will but open our hearts, not judge, and exercise faith. I testify that the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the everlasting gospel. It stands as another witness for Christ in the world today. I testify that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. Through him, the gospel and church of Jesus Christ were restored to the earth in these latter days. We do not have to physically be in the sacred grove to receive guidance and instruction from our Heavenly Father. Nevertheless, we must learn the language of the Spirit for ourselves and find our own sacred places in which we personally come to know the things of God by the Spirit of God. As we daily kneel in prayer and speak to a loving Father and listen to His answers, we come to recognize the sound of His voice and feel His love for us. Fasting tunes our hearts to the language of the Spirit and opens doors to deeper conversations with our Father. The primary song says, I love to see the temple. I'm going there someday to feel the Holy Spirit, to listen and to pray. The temple is a place where the language of the heart is spoken freely, where the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen are manifest to the heart and soul, and our minds are quickened. As we become fluent in that language, we will receive further knowledge of the truthfulness of the work of God. We will come to know who we are and why we are here. We will receive evidence that God knows us and cares about us, that we are His children, and that the Holy Spirit can be our guide and companion throughout life. I pray we will seek our own sacred places where we can come to know the truths of the restored gospel by listening to the Holy Spirit speak evidences to our yearning hearts. I also pray that as we leave this devotional today, the words of a loving father to his precious child will echo in our hearts. You do what you can, and I'll help you if you get stuck. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is readying ourselves for revelation. We've just heard from Roger Sorensen. After the break, we'll return with an address from Tracy B. Nielsen entitled, The Messy Middle of Revelation. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is readying ourselves for revelation. 
Next, we'll hear from Tracy B. Nielsen, BYU Associate Professor of Physics at the time of this address, entitled The Messy Middle of Revelation. I'm honored to speak with you today and grateful for the help of the BYU Broadcasting Team in preparing. The title of my talk, The Messy Middle of Revelation, was inspired by a conversation I had in 2007. I was part of a team that hosted the national meeting for the Acoustical Society of America in Salt Lake City. A dozen of our colleagues had come from around the world to plan the technical program and assign rooms to different sessions. After our long planning section, we took our guests to the Roof Restaurant with its lovely view of the Salt Lake Temple. I am sure dinner was amazing, but I remember this night so vividly because of the conversation I had with two of my colleagues on the walk back to the hotel. As we were walking, one turned to me and asked, Do you really believe what they say about Joseph Smith? I replied that I do believe that in the spring of 1820, Joseph Smith prayed to know which church to join. In his answer to this humble prayer of this 14-year-old farm boy, God the Father and his beloved son Jesus Christ appeared and called Joseph to restore Christ's church to the earth. Joseph was the first Latter-day prophet. I then explained that our church has been led by prophets to this day, but that we each have a responsibility to do as Joseph Smith did and ask God and to receive our own personal confirmation of what the prophet tells us. His response really surprised me. He said, That sounds very disorganized. As I was wondering how to respond, our other colleague who was walking with us from New Orleans, who had recently lived through the cleanup after Hurricane Katrina, emphatically said, If there is one thing their church is, it's organized. Since that conversation, I've often thought about how it may seem a bit disorganized or a bit messy to have these two sources of revelation or inspiration from God. First, prophets have the responsibility to obtain revelation and to lead the church and provide guidance to us. Second, we each have the responsibility to use our free will or agency to receive personal inspiration from the Holy Spirit. Do you ever feel caught in the messy middle between these two sources of revelation that connect us with God? Brene Brown once said in a different context, the middle is messy, but it's where the magic happens. And I think that applies here. As I've pondered how we deal with being in the messy middle of revelation, I see an analogy with how the sound travels in the ocean. My research area is underwater acoustics. You may be familiar with the idea of active sonar. A noise is sent out, and after a time, it reflects off an object and causes an echo. My research, however, it deals with passive sonar, where the underwater microphones, called hydrophones, do not emit pings, but merely record the sounds in the ocean. These sounds are then used to infer properties of the ocean environment and determine the origin of the sound. You might be wondering how it is possible to extract so much information from just listening, The key is that the ocean environment changes how the sound travels from point A to point B. By ocean environment, I mean the water depth, the temperature, and the sediment in the ocean floor. To help explain why the ocean environment impacts how the sound travels, I've asked the BYU Broadcasting Team to illustrate the important phenomenon. When something produces a sound in the water, the sound wave travels outward in all directions, but it doesn't necessarily travel in a straight line to the hydrophone. In the ocean, sound waves bend toward depths that have the lowest sound speed. This phenomenon is called refraction. The sound speed depends on the temperature, pressure, and salinity of the water. These properties vary across the oceans, as well as changing seasonally and daily due to weather patterns. Thus, sound can experience complex refraction when traveling from the source to the hydrophone. 
In the deep ocean, the sound speed first decreases with depth down to approximately 3,000 feet and then increases farther down. This minimum value in the sound speed causes a focusing effect due to the refraction and gives rise to what is called the SOFAR channel. Low-frequency sounds in the SOFAR channel travel thousands of miles. The SOFAR channel was used to locate downed pilots during World War II and search for foreign submarines during the Cold War. Currently, the SOFAR channel is used to listen to whales and monitor earthquakes. Another wave phenomenon that impacts how sound travels in the ocean is reflection. You have experienced reflection when you've heard echoes. Sound in the ocean reflects off the surface of the water and off of the ocean floor. When the sound waves hit the surface of the water, they reflect back with the same energy. But when the sound hits the ocean floor, only some of the energy is reflected and some is transmitted into the sediment layers. How much sound is reflected depends on the type of material that makes up the sediment layers in the ocean floor. For example, sound is reflected more by sand than by mud. When the ocean floor has a lot of sand, especially near the top, sounds can be heard at farther distances. But mud. Mud tends to not reflect much sound, but to allow lots of sound to travel into the ocean floor. This absorption causes less sound to be reflected in the water, even at relatively close distances. Now, below the complex layering of the sediment in the ocean floor lies bedrock, formed from the compression of mud and sand and other substances over geological timescales. Now, my analogy for the messy middle of Revelation is based on these phenomena of refraction and reflection, with particular emphasis on the mud, sand, and rock. We believe that our individual spirits lived with God before we were born. During that time, we were in direct communication with Him, and we received His voice directly. When we were born, a veil was drawn, so we were no longer able to remember that time. In my analogy, birth is like entering the water. God loves us and wants to communicate with us, but we can no longer receive his word directly. So instead, he communicates to us with the light of Christ, prophets, and the Holy Spirit. Each person is born with the light of Christ. Small children are more in touch with this light of Christ, almost as though they were in a protective so far channel. But with time, that protective channel weakens, and we are bombarded by all sorts of messages and sounds from the world. This background noise can make it very difficult to hear the promptings of the light of Christ. So to help us, the Lord sends more directional sources to convey his word. First, he sends inspiration to his prophet. In my analogy, I imagine a directional loudspeaker pointed towards the ocean surface. Just as the surface of the ocean almost perfectly reflects sound, so the prophet passes on the revelation he receives from the Lord. In the Old Testament, we read about many prophets. For example, Moses was called to be a prophet when the Lord spoke to him through a burning bush and then told him how to lead the children of Israel out of bondage. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and many other prophets warned the people and prophesied of Christ's coming. In the New Testament, Peter led the church after Christ's death. Similarly, Joseph Smith was called to restore Christ's church. Since that time, our church has been led by a prophet. Our current prophet is Russell M. Nelson. He speaks to us regularly at our biannual conferences, writes letters about official matters, and has communicated with us in both video messages and emails during this pandemic. Here are a few things that he has recently told us as he reflects the Lord's word to us. As disciples of Jesus Christ, our efforts to hear him need to be ever more intentional. It takes conscious and consistent effort to fill our daily lives with his words, his teachings, his truths. 
Each of God's children deserves the opportunity to hear and accept the healing, redeeming message of Jesus Christ. No other message is more vital to our happiness now and forever. No other message is more filled with hope. No other message can eliminate contention in our society. Today I call upon our members everywhere to lead out in abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice. I plead with you to promote respect for all of God's children. Are you willing to let God prevail in your life? Are you willing to let God be the most important influence in your life? I truly cherish the words of our prophet. I listen to his messages regularly, and I am grateful for his inspired words. It seems to me that since he became the prophet in 2018, President Nelson has carefully examined what we do in our church and has petitioned the Lord to know if our traditional ways of doing things is exactly what the Lord would have us do at this time. We have seen significant changes because of the revelation President Nelson has received from the Lord, and I am grateful for his diligence in sharing these revelations with us. The words of the prophet are readily available to anyone with connection to the internet. However, reading or listening to his words are not enough to convince us of their truthfulness. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this plea from the prophet to us a year ago as we entered the Cove SARS-2 pandemic. I renew my plea for you to do whatever it takes to increase your spiritual capacity to receive personal revelation. That's the question. How do we receive personal revelation? We need to be able to hear and feel the Holy Spirit. When Christ lived on earth, he explained to his disciples that he would send the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, to comfort them and speak peace to their hearts. The Holy Spirit also teaches us of the reality of God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, and confirms truth. This witness from the Holy Spirit enables the words of the prophets and scriptures to make a difference in our lives. The Holy Spirit also brings to our remembrance, which is very helpful, for example, after you've studied for a hard for an exam. The Holy Spirit helps us discern what we should do and say and is the source of divine discontent that prods us to change and turn to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the conduit by which we can access God's love and forgiveness if we sincerely and humbly ask and are able to receive it. In my ocean acoustics analogy, I envision an inspiration from the Holy Spirit as being delivered by a directional loudspeaker pointed towards the ocean floor. The ocean floor represents the physical, emotional, mental, social, and spiritual environment of our lives. Our personal revelation from the Holy Spirit reaches us through this environment and the reality of our lives, our daily thoughts, choices, actions, interactions with others, all impact our ability to feel the Holy Spirit, similar to how the presence of mud or sand in the ocean floor impacts the amount of sound present in the ocean. So I will now spend the rest of my time discussing how the messy mud, sand, and rock, our personal environment, impact our ability to receive inspiration from the Holy Spirit. Mud. Mud is natural. At times, feeling the mud squelch between your toes or using it to build an imaginary city might be fun, but ultimately mud is messy. More to the point in my analogy, mud absorbs sound. Mud strips away the energy in the sound waves so it cannot continue traveling to the hydrophone. Recently, I've observed an increased amount of mud in our lives, individually and collectively, mud that limits our capacity to hear the still small voice of the Spirit. I can fill pages with lists of the kinds of mud that I, my family, friends, and students have in their lives, especially 15 months into the pandemic. 
I invite you to identify a few of your top sources of mud. I don't have time to mention every source of mud, but I would like to mention a few general types of social, physical, emotional, and mental mud. Our social environment may include some mud. Social interactions might occur in person or online or just in your own brain. Any interaction that causes or promotes contention or negativity are sources of mud. Ask yourself, what kinds of social mud are you causing or experiencing? I invite you to consider what you can do to limit these types of social mud. If someone or something, like social media, video games, virtual reality, talk shows, or podcasts, is a source of contention or negativity in your life, plan how you can limit that source of mud. Our physical bodies can also contribute to our mud. For many of us, fatigue, exhaustion are huge sources of mud. Any of the multitude of systems in our bodies can have problems, and some of these problems are temporary, others are chronic. Many times the amazing body can heal itself, and other times medical advances can help our bodies heal. But sometimes complete physical healing is not possible. Do you have physical things that are acting like layers of mud? Is there anything you can do to change them, or do you just need to learn how to deal with them? The largest source of mud for most of us is probably our emotional and mental environment. First, I would like to say that the broad range of human emotions are natural. It is normal to experience anger, sadness, fear, anxiousness, grief, and all other negative emotions. If we can accept that these emotions are natural, then we are in a better place to deal with them constructively. It is important to learn appropriate ways of expressing and dealing with our negative emotions and not deny or suppress them. Our emotions originate in the brain and are tied up with our mental processes, What are some of your types of emotional and mental mud? For example, the pandemic restrictions over the past years have increased the feelings of isolation and helplessness and anxiety and fear for many of us. Are you still dealing with extra mud from the pandemic? Or do you deal with mud from an addiction? In addition to addictive substances, gambling and pornography, the list of possible addictive behaviors also includes electronic games, virtual reality, and social media. And you may ask why these seemingly normal things are addicting, and the reason is simple, because someone makes more money if you get addicted. They design their products to stimulate the pleasure sensors in your brain. Every battle won, every level completed, and every like or emoji response sends a shot of dopamine to your brain. The brain remembers that and wants more of it. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that video games are evil or that you should not participate on social media platforms, but please be honest with yourself or ask someone who loves you if you have an addiction that is pouring mud into your mental environment. In particular, I invite you to examine your smartphone usage. Are you using your phone as a tool, or are you a slave to the pings and notifications? Do you use your phone purposefully, or is it your default mode to be looking at something on your phone instead of at the people or the world around you? This amazing technology that we use every day is wonderful if we choose to use it wisely. If not, it can add a lot of mental and emotional mud. The concept of choice is central to dealing with many sources of mud. For example, if you find yourself saying, I can't help it, it's just the way I am, then you have abandoned your right to choose something different and you have surrendered to mental mud. But recent research in brain sciences have shown the reality of neuroplasticity in the brain, that the brain can change its thought pattern through diligent effort. Neuroplasticity is so exciting because it means that you are not stuck with the brain you currently have. Your brain does an incredible job at keeping you alive and also allowing you to experience life. But unfortunately, brains have a natural tendency to automatically generate negative thoughts. These negative thoughts are like Velcro in your brain. 
Velcro that becomes stronger every time you let the negative thoughts go unchallenged. So I invite you to step back and realize that you are not your brain. Your brain is an organ like your heart. Instead of believing every thought that arises, you can choose to question if those negative thoughts are true. Ask yourself, are they 100% true? For example, when I have a thought like, I'm going to fail, or I'm so stupid, I have the choice to either believe it and deal with the fallout, or I can talk back to the thought. And sometimes it is helpful to write down the negative thought and then write down why it is not 100% true. Now, I'm not suggesting that you ignore what your brain is telling you. I have a healthy level of fear or anxiety is important to keep you safe. For example, fear of a car accident encourages us to drive attentively and defensively. But the fear and anxiety that come from sustained negative thoughts and emotions can disrupt our lives and need to be addressed. Some fears that are commonly experienced are fear of failing, fear of not knowing what to do or say, fear of missing out, and fear of not meeting expectations. What fears are sources of mud for you? Now, many of the types of mud I've mentioned can be dealt with using the types of sand I will discuss in a moment, but first I want to acknowledge that there are substantially more difficult types of mud. Returning to the ocean floor analogy, the mud from grief, abuse, trauma, and serious mental conditions can be so thick that it can completely absorb promptings from the Holy Spirit and thus needs to be handled carefully. For both the serious and more common types of mud in your life, I encourage you to find out what you can do. Mud is real. We all deal with different kinds of mud. To me, this analogy of mud incorporates the default human condition, what it means in the scriptures when it states the natural man is an enemy to God. For if we do not deal with the mud in our lives, we are not able to receive inspiration from the Holy Spirit, which offers us hope, leads us to truth, and allows us to feel God's love. In my ocean analogy, I liken the things we can do to reduce the impact of mud to adding layers of sand to the ocean floor. Not only do these things help us feel better and deal with the mud in our lives, but they also increase how our environment reflects the Holy Spirit. Examples of ways to add sand and improve reception of the Holy Spirit can be found in many places. For example, wellness pages and the BYU Counseling and Psychological Services page are filled with ideas to limit anxiety, improve sleep, etc. So I encourage you to consider your list of mud and see what specific types of sand can help. I'm now going to share with you some of my favorite types of sand. First, practice gratitude. The Lord has long told us about the importance of gratitude, but now scientific research has confirmed the brain functions better when a person focuses on gratitude. When I end the day by writing down three things I am grateful for, it makes a difference. Similarly, scientific studies have confirmed the positive benefits of compassion and service on brain health. In fact, Christ's Sermon on the Mount lists many types of sand that increase our ability to feel the Holy Spirit. The descriptions of charity by Paul are also filled with excellent types of sand to work on. Optimism is another type of sand. My favorite definition of an optimist is someone who understands there are challenges but believes they have the resources to overcome those challenges. As we strive to feel the Holy Spirit, we can be optimistic, for the Lord is on our side and wants to help us overcome and progress. One of the healthiest things you can do for your brain is to learn. Doing a hard thing you're familiar with is not the same as learning something new, because the amazing brain figures out easier ways to do hard things each time it practices. Learning something new forces your brain to forge new connections and not be stuck in ruts. Another type of sand is creativity. Dieter Uchtdorf explained that creating brings us closer to God because he is the creator of all. What you create is not important, just the act of creating. Music is particularly powerful. Singing, dancing, and playing music, even if by yourself, are all ways to lay down layers of reflective sand. 
Physical activity and being in nature are excellent sources of sand, whether it is taking a walk, admiring the flowers, hiking in the mountains, or having a picnic in the park. Being outside can help you feel the Holy Spirit. Positive social interactions are another great source of sand. I suggest you surround yourself with the most positive people you can stand. Anything that promotes smiles. (laughs) You know it's real, right? I agree. Anyway. (laughs) Anything that promotes smiles, good humor, and laughter adds sand to your environment. Find people with common interests and goals and do something positive. Share compliments and compassion generously. Many find it difficult to take time to add the sand of self-care. Are you getting adequate sleep and good nutrition? Are you taking time to read and ponder the scriptures and other uplifting messages? Are you praying to your Father in heaven, communicating your gratitude, hopes, and fears, and desires, and then taking time to listen? In our busy world with so many distractions, especially those on screens, please consider how taking time for self-care can add sand and reduce mud in your life. Now, this is not a checklist, just some ideas. The sand you need is particularly tied in with your unique combination of mud. What matters is that you find the types of sand that are most effective at helping you feel inspiration from the Holy Spirit. I would highly recommend that you ponder and consult with the Lord to know what types of sand would be most effective for you at this moment and then check in regularly to see if additional or different types of sand are needed. For example, when I had three young children, was dealing with fibromyalgia, trying to keep a toe in my career by telecommuting five to ten hours a week, I remember in particular the craziness of one general conference weekend. As I was trying to listen, the Spirit spoke three words to me clearly. Play more music. While it may seem like that had nothing to do with my situation, the Lord knew that music was exactly the kind of sand my family and I needed at that time. At one point, my normally resilient self was rocked with depression, and while not as bad as many people experience, it occasionally left me in a dark place curled up on the floor wondering how I'd be able to go on. And I struggled for quite a while with no one knowing, carrying on, just as many do. As I pled with the Lord to know what to do to combat the continual flow of mud into my brain, the thought came, listen to the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. So I started. Every moment that I was not actively using all of my brain for something constructive, I listened to the Book of Mormon. As I drove, as I cleaned or folded laundry, as I waited in lines, I let the teachings of Jesus Christ wash over me. The continual flow of sand was sufficient to provide a break in the darkness so that I could then begin to work on the other types of sand I mentioned today. Now, if none of these types of sand provide relief from your sources of mud, please get professional help. There exist effective therapies, especially for dealing with severe depression, anxiety, grief, and trauma. Medications may be necessary in the short or long term if your brain is functioning in a way that is harmful to your well-being. Okay, I've spoken a lot about mud and sand, but now I want you um, to turn your mind to rock. Below the sediment layers in the ocean is the foundation, the bedrock. Think for a minute about your foundation. You may have lots of mud and some sand, You will hopefully be able to find ways of decreasing the mud and increasing the sand. But neither you nor me can change our mud or sand into rock. Only the atonement of Jesus Christ can create rock, a sure foundation. I truly believe that the power of Christ's atonement can change even the most awful circumstances of our lives, the deepest, thickest, most continual types of mud into rock. He suffered for our sins to satisfy the demands of justice. He experienced every negative thought, emotion, pain, anxiety, frustration, despair, grief, and trauma as part of his atonement. Now, Christ chose to do this for us because he loves us, 
God the Father let Christ suffer to this extent because he too loves us, and they both want us to feel that love every day through the Holy Spirit. And as we feel that redeeming love, the mud in our lives can be changed to rock. Now, remember how in the scriptures it talks about how a house built on a rock will be able to withstand the storms? What happened to the house that was on the sand? It washed away, right? While laying down layers of sand is important, our sand will not be enough to withstand the storms of life if we do not allow the inspiration that we receive from the Holy Spirit to change us. To change our sand into rock, we need to continually work on developing personal relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to testify to us of their reality and their great plan of happiness. We need to receive strength when times are hard and learn to trust the Lord. We need to let Christ's atonement fill us with understanding, compassion, empathy, charity, faith, and hope, and connect us to the rock of our salvation. I've thought long about these ideas, and I hope I've been able to convey them in a way that has invited the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Inspiration from the Holy Spirit has been so important in my life. When I was a young college student wondering what I should major in, and I chose physics even though I didn't have an answer for the question of what will you do with that, I felt peace through the Holy Spirit. When I went to graduate school, but I didn't know how a PhD in physics would mesh with my desire to be primarily at home with my young children, I kept going because the Spirit whispered peace. As different unexpected opportunities arose for me to keep a tone in my career, I was amazed. And I did not anticipate or plan that when our youngest child was in eighth grade, the Holy Spirit would prompt me to apply for a full-time faculty job, nor that when I did so, so many things would happen to make it exactly the right time to do so. I never planned to be a university professor, and am still quite astounded by how things continue to unfold as I move ahead. I am extremely grateful for inspiration from the Holy Spirit. I pray you will understand that personal inspiration you receive from the Holy Spirit is the key. The key to knowing what the Lord would have you do with the words of his prophet so you don't feel stuck in the messy middle of Revelation. Inspiration from the Holy Spirit is the key to identifying your sources of mud and the key to understanding the most helpful types of sand. But most of all, the Holy Spirit is the conduit by which you can feel how much your Father in Heaven loves you And how through Jesus Christ, through his atonement, all of your mud and your sand can be changed to rock, and Christ can become your sure foundation. And I say these things humbly in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was readying ourselves for revelation— with thoughts from Roger Sorensen and Tracy B. Nielsen. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.